It didn't seem appealing at all initially. The wedding catering and venue business was mostly just a husband and wife team. It was in a tourist town. There was customer concentration, one-off client engagements, no recurring revenue, and it played in industries that he wanted to avoid, hospitality and food. But at the urging of the broker, today's guest, Nick Patrick, took a second look at the business. And upon closer inspection, he discovered a lot to like. High margins, negative cash conversion cycle, stellar reviews, 30 years of history. Oh, and an asking price of 1x, much of which the sellers were willing to finance. Nick bought this business using only $20,000 out of pocket. And while it wasn't his initial plan, he sold it just 19 months later. All told, he netted himself about $900,000. A remarkable story of taking a second look, systematically thinking through risks, and going all in. Please enjoy my conversation with Nick Patrick, former owner of a wedding, catering, and venue business in Colorado. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. What do the following Acquiring Minds guests all have in common? Doug Johns, Morley Desai, Tim Erickson, Sharag Shaw, Shane Ursum. They all went through the acquisition lab the accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. But they represent just a sliver of the lab's success stories. The number of deals across the lab's cohorts now stands at over 120, with over $300 million in aggregate transaction value. The Acquisition Lab was founded by Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, the book that introduced so many of you to the very idea of buying a business. The lab offers a month-long intensive, almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, live deal reviews with Walker, deal team introductions, and an active community of serious searchers. Check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the notes, or email the lab's co-founder, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Nick Patrick, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thank you for having me, Will. Super excited. Nick, you bought a very small business, essentially a husband and wife team in a difficult industry, operationally complex, consumer facing, without recurring revenue, and you made it work. You stabilized and grew the business and actually sold it 19 months later for a really great return, which you are going to share with us. We're going to get into the numbers. So we'll hear that. We'll hear the whole story about how this, this eventful 19, 20 months of your life. Uh, and let's get started with some background on you, please. Perfect. Well, yeah, first of all, uh, thanks for having me, Will. Uh, long time listener, been listening for years and appreciate everything you've done for the community. Um, it's awesome. Um, Thank so yeah, you. with that, a little background myself. Um, I'm uh, originally from Colorado. Um, Entrepreneurship's been in my blood for as long as I can remember. So, you know, elementary school, I was flipping video games and then just scaled the the size of my uh, uh, ventures from there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to school for finance um, here in uh, Colorado at Boulder and then uh, spent the next seven and a half years of my life uh, in wealth management at Fidelity Investments. Um, so uh, that took me out to San Francisco. Uh, they took care of my uh, master's in finance uh, at Indiana University, also covered my CFP. Um, so awesome training ground, learned some incredible uh, sales experience, um, but just you know, wasn't fulfilled. Didn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. Uh, and as I reflected, you know, the entrepreneurship, the creativity um, was something that I could see myself, um, you know, doing, always have, and wanted to take that jump. Um, so basically, self-reflection, your podcast, other podcasts <laughs> uh, led me to the highest likelihood of success of not having to have a W-2 for the rest of my life was buying a business. And had you heard about, I'm just curious where you heard about buying a business, how you got turned on mm-hmm. to the pods and everything. What was, what was the first, uh, the red pill? Yeah. Uh, invest like the best. Mm. Some of these early on search funder, big, you know, traditional searches of, Hey, this is a thing that exists. Mm-hmm. And then leading into your podcast, uh, it became clear of, you know, no matter your background, experience um that this can be done and you know on a smaller scale was a little bit more attractive to me um as well fantastic okay so you uh, are in san francisco and you've decided that you want to become an entrepreneur proper uh you have an entrepreneurial personality but at this point you're you're sitting in a w-2 uh what happens next yeah um was in covid so i didn't have to dress up and wear the tie into work anymore. So that afforded me some time uh, to spend elsewhere. Um, so I got to the point where I committed to, hey, I'm going to quit my job, you know, nine months out. Um, and so really approached those nine months of anything I can do is icing on the cake. So read all the books you're supposed to read, you know, did all the networking, um, and then started, you know, looking at, um, you know, different listings purely through brokers. Um, so that was kind of my ramp up just to get my feet wet and kind of understand the jargon, um, industry, you know, the SBA loans, all of that good stuff. And as I recall, you were actually living a pretty good life, even though you didn't want to remain in a W2, you were surfing, like you lived by the beach. Where did you, where did you live in San Francisco roughly? Uh, I was, um, Outer sunset? About three blocks off ocean beach, outer sunset. Yeah. Okay. 41st in Judah. Oh, great. Okay. I lived, I lived on just off Ocean Avenue was the last place that we lived. So more inland uh, as you go toward, as you go toward um, 280 uh, there. So it's not that, that San Francisco was killing you. You were actually, you were actually thriving there, but wanted to be an entrepreneur. These listings that you're looking at, these brokers that you're reaching out to, wh- where are they? Where, wh- what is the geography of your goal look like? So my geography was originally Colorado. Um, I started looking in California initially, um, just in case I was going to make a fool out of myself. Um, and then once I felt comfortable, I uh, moved to Colorado, which was realistically um, where um, all my family was, where I wanted to live for the rest of my life, where my you know, long-term girlfriend was living at the time. 
Um, so that was a hundred percent where I wanted to be, um, for, a for an acquisition. Okay. So, so you kind of get your feet wet looking at California listings, but ultimately this was going to be a path for you to get back to your home state where girlfriend and family all were and where presumably you're going to set, put down roots. Correct. Great. Okay. Yep. So, uh, Tell us a little bit more about this search. How does it how does it go? And by the way, what is it what does it look like when you're talking to brokers and you're in California? Are you telling them all that you'll move to Colorado or or what? Yep. Yeah. So the story is basically um, just telling them about where I grew up, what's important to me, um, why I want to be in Colorado. Um, not many people who live in Colorado are necessarily from Colorado, uh, so that flowed quite well. People could latch on to that. Um, and uh, to, to your initial question there um, of where the search went, basically uh, starting to talk to brokers, I'm getting every single you know new listing that's coming in via email, reaching out, You know, had a one pager I'd be sending to brokers, trying to get an individual call with them uh, and explain, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, here's who I am. Here's my experience, what I'm looking for, and just to kind of build that relationship of a new business comes along, maybe Nick's the right person to buy that business um, is where I went. And and what were you looking for? What were some of your search parameters other than state of Colorado? Yep. Um, I had the traditional search criteria. So I was a little bit smaller, but you know, 500K to a million dollars of SDE. You know, your traditional recurring revenue, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I was looking at everything. I had no clue. You know, I didn't have a specific category um, and uh, just was trying to see everything I could with the goal of narrowing it down once I quit, move back, um, and, you know, really jump into this thing. I love that you you were looking for the, you know, the businesses that check the boxes uh, and, and you were, and you were industry agnostic, except as I know from our pre-call, you did not want hospitality. You did not want food. You basically violated every single one of your parameters. <laughs> so yeah, the only metric <laughs> that, 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 uh, the company that I bought met for the traditional parameters was good margins. That was it. Good margins. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but th this is going to be such a good lesson in being open-minded and, um, and, and taking a closer look at things. So segueing myself here. So tell us about, uh, your first glimpse of this business that you would go on to buy. How did, how did it come across your desk? Sure. Yeah. I was in San Francisco about, uh, probably seven months out from the quit date and, uh, I get the, the SIM for a wedding catering company and a wedding venue. Um, numbers look good. Asking price looked good. Uh, I read through it and I see hospitality. I see food. I see owners heavily involved. I see a small you know, tourist town and I immediately passed. Sent the broker a quick email and said, hey, I'm passing for these reasons. Um, and moving on to the next thing, and that I did. Mm -hmm. And um, and and so it, it had a venue as part of as part of it. Correct. Okay. It's right. a wedding venue, has a commercial kitchen on site, um, and then majority of the business comes from actually catering at other wedding venues. Okay. 
Okay. And you mentioned the its location in a tourist town. Why was that something that you didn't like? Because tourist towns are so seasonal, so cyclical? Yeah. The um, variety of, of issues. Being up in the mountains, you know, you have a smaller workforce pool. Um, you know, it's seasonal, about hour and a half drive from Denver, where all my family, um, girlfriend, now wife lives. Sure. Okay. So you say no, but here you sit. So so then what happens? How do you how does the the no become a yes? Yeah, fast forward six months. Um, there was no bites. Nobody wanted to buy this business. So the broker reaches back out to me, and um, you know, and she says, "Hey, I'd love for you to talk to the owners." And I'm about a month out from quitting my job, and I said, "Hey, I'd love to talk to the owners. This would be perfect. You know, no risk." um, opportunity to start talking to an owner, get my feet wet in those, those spaces. Um, so that I did. And then, um, had a great call. Uh, the owner seemed like an awesome person, very, uh, put together, business minded and, uh, went ahead and scheduled the time to go ahead and meet the owners from there in person, um, see the premise. But wait, Nick, so, but when the broker reached back out to you six months later and said, Hey, Mm -hmm. take another look, and you said yes, was that just an yep. exercise in kind of having a call with an owner? Or at this point, had you- 100%. Okay, so you 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 were still pretty much like hard no on the business. This was just kind of, why not? Why not just talk to an owner? Exactly right. Okay, and and then you, but, but in fact, you talk to the owner and like them and they sound like they know what they're doing, that they're professional, that they're a business person. So at yep. what point then do you actually- look back under the hood of the business and, and start to like the business for its, for its own fundamentals more than you did at first glance. Yeah. The second I hung up that call, I was right back into it of saying, what is this company? What are they all about? And then I started to see some pretty attractive things. Um, you know, aside from the financials, um, I saw that they had flawless reviews, you know, 200 reviews combined between wedding wire, between, um, Google, you know, not one negative review. Right. I said, wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, this company's been around more than 30 years. You know, they're doing something right there. Um, and, 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 and for such a hate. high stakes Good. for wedding, you know, for basically catering weddings, you'd think that, I mean, every wedding I go to or have been to, people are kind of like have their little, their little complaints. They're like, is there such thing as a perfect wedding or is there such thing as the bride and groom thinking that everything was just perfect? I just feel like it would be a category where it'd be um, much easy, pretty easy to garner negative reviews, even if you're doing a great job. I would totally agree, but no, there is such thing as a perfect wedding and we did a ton of them. Um, <laughs> awesome. And you know, if you're getting it 95% right and there might be a few little bumps, um, People are looking to have a great time, mm. and if you can provide that for them, uh, that's what they're looking for. Memories, uh, good food, good times. I think that's most important versus you know, little little details that might be missed or overlooked by ah. you know vendor or something like that. Ah, good. Most business buyers acquire their target company using an asset purchase, which means that you've got a brand new legal entity that needs to be ready on day one to properly employ your new team. Payroll, HR documents, tax accounts, workers' comp, benefit plans like medical and 401k. You need to make sure all of that is transferred or set up 
on day one. Aspen HR understands this challenge and the delicate timing that searchers have to juggle. Led by a successful former searcher, Mark Sinatra, Aspen HR can assist searchers to ensure a seamless transition for the employees. If you are structuring an asset purchase, contact Aspen HR for a free consultation. They'll walk you through their proprietary checklist for asset purchases that assesses your readiness for HR, payroll, and benefits. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. So Flawless Reviews, and you said 30 years old. Yep. Okay. And when you say you talk to the owner, it's a very small business, a husband and wife team. Mm -hmm. You'll flesh that out for us a little bit. But who did you talk to, the husband or the wife? Uh, The wife. The wife. Okay, so you have this call, you, then it, it goes well, you look at the look more closely at the business, take a second, deeper look at the business, and then all these kind of details reveal themselves that are very positive, and you decide to do what? V- visit them, you said? Yeah, so I, I started to you know, peel back the layers of the onion. I said, this is pretty attractive. I still don't like the industry, um, but it's worth seeing this through. Let's go meet the owners, see the venue. Um, and go from there. So I carpooled with uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, and the business broker. So an hour-long drive uh, up to the the mountain town and met both the husband and wife. Um, Husband was the chef or the head chef, and then the wife handled a lot of the bookings and some of the operations pieces. Toured the venue toured the space. Uh, wedding venue was gorgeous. Uh, it was, you know, historic, old, you know, intimate, um, awesome charm. Definitely some potential as you look at the, the space. Toured the kitchen, toured, um, you know, the whole premise. And um, I kind of liked what I saw. It was not that complicated of a business. They've got it figured out um, fairly well and saw some potential um, but still was not a hundred percent, you know, this is what I want to do. I, uh, uh, you know, the, yes, I'll yeah. stop there. Well, Sorry. well I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push on a lot of these, uh, weaknesses or at least what looked like weaknesses in the business to, cause I know Please you, do. you kind of systematically went through and figured out how you mitigate each of them. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, but give us more of a picture of this venue. So is the venue, what is that? Just kind of like a big open room with a stage at one end and a kitchen in the back, or is it, or is it actually like a converted barn or some converted like thing yep. that's been repurposed? Yeah. So the the wedding venue was about 120 years old, uh, historic building. Originally was a residence. Mm. Um, through the years, it was a restaurant, a bed and breakfast, and then was converted about 20 years ago into a wedding venue. Uh, and the commercial kitchen was expanded. So it's uh, a large interior space, uh, two large outdoor decks, two-tiered lawn. Uh, So it was good for about 60 people uh, for a seated event. We could do um, both rehearsal dinners, uh, actual weddings with ceremonies on site. Um, And then we do all of our cooking for... Uh, weddings at our venue or off-premise, so other wedding venues uh, on-site there at the property as well. So there you you do also mm-hmm. go ahead. No, please. 
Yep. There was also a um, former ranger cabin from one of the uh, national parks that was on premise too, which we'll get into the significance of that shortly. <laughs> so this is this is a site that you arrive at and. And I assume being in a tourist town, it's it's quite picturesque. It's in the Colorado Mountains, uh, and it's got this Correct. romantic old building. I mean, it's probably it's probably pretty alluring. I, I, you're having hesitation about you know buying this business. Does this actually become your life? But I imagine it's got great curb appeal. Uh, kind of wrong choice of phrase there. There's no curbs up up in the mountains, but you know it's kind of like <laughs> it kind of it makes an impact as you as you approach, drive up to it, and kind of poke around. Sounds like an interesting property, at least. Definitely, yeah, yeah interesting property. So you got so the business did catering, like they would do weddings on site, but they would also do yep. they would also be just the caterers if the bride and groom had another site where they were going to have the correct have the uh, wedding. Okay. 80% of the revenue was off-premise catering. So majority of it was actually coming from some of the more high-end venues around the area. Um, and a very small percentage was, you know, 20% or so was coming from on-site um, venue fees and catering. Oh, interesting. Well, th then if that's the case, then it almost sounds like, you know, th this property wasn't, I mean, it only represented kind of a key to 20% of the revenue. So it's almost more like this is, this is additional real estate to the business as opposed to being a key element of the business. It's almost like you're, yeah, you're it might, you might think about this, start to think about this transaction as an operating business with some real estate attached as opposed to the real estate being really intrinsic to the business. 100% correct. Okay. But uh, it's a tiny team. So it's the husband's the chef. The wife is kind of operations, business, booking, sales, right? Yep. Yep. And anybody else? So when they originally listed, there was one other woman who'd been with the company for seven years, uh, who also was doing the majority of the sales huh. um, and helping out with the planning. So there's a pretty in-depth planning process leading up to a wedding. So um, she would take care of all the um, planning, detailing, uh, and then coordination with um, the chefs. Between when I... Um, originally saw the business or, uh, and then the six months later when I went and visited with the owners, she had actually quit. Um, but it was apparent to me, I needed someone who understood how this business worked. And, uh, they told me, Hey, she, you know, she may have interest in coming back. Um, so that was someone that I said, if uh, this is something I pursue, I'll hundred percent need this person to help me figure out what it is that I'm going to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Okay. <laughs> well, so, I mean, so that, that's, um, you know, you need this person to come back, which is, you know, there's yep. some risk there, although maybe you can negotiate that in advance of actually signing on the dotted line. So you kind of mitigate that risk. But, but what about the fact that, 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 I mean, this business is basically all key people. What about, so, yep. so yeah. So, so, so how did you answer the screaming question of like, who's going to be the chef and who's going to be the operator? And, you know, you can, even if you were, you know, even if you wanted to, like you, you wouldn't be able to do both of those. So, so, you know, the, the biggest flaw here, the weakness of the business, how did you wrap your mind about around it? Yeah. Um, the seller said, Hey, you know, we have another chef who's here part-time. Um, and, I quite honestly said, hey, I can go 
and did post listings to see if there's interest in this town um, for uh, chefs. So I wrap my head around it of, we're going to have an extra period for the head chef. If I can't hire someone you know, in a month, um, I'm going to have the opportunity to continue to keep the former owner and former head chef on. Um, and had confidence, hey, I could figure this out. If I got a month, two months, three months to get a chef in there to get them trained, I, I feel pretty confident that um, I can get someone in there, I can pay them well, and get someone who can execute um, for the business. And you felt confident in that because A, the head chef slash seller was willing to be involved for a transition and, and to train a new chef, and B, because you'd posted essentially this job opening before you even owned the business to kind of test the waters of the local labor market to see if there were chefs even available in the market to come fill this role. And and and, and you got a, a yes to that answer. You felt that there were. Got a yes to both those answers. Um, let's just jump a little ahead. But the sellers, you were about to close down this business about three months um, later. No one had purchased it. They're great people, still friends with them. And they were very open to just about um, just about anything in terms of helping me be successful. Um, they really did see, and we connected really well of, uh, Nick can get in there, run this business and had total confidence. So they were willing to make some, um, you know, consolations to help me be successful. Mm -hmm. And this thing about them basically three months later, like it, three months away from just shutting the business down. Did you know that during the negotiation or did that, did you only learn that much later? Because um, that could, that's obviously a, a big, that's gives you a lot of negotiating leverage. If you know that their alternative, you know, the alternative is no money or some money from you. The broker shared that with me prior to an LOI. So ah. I, I would became aware of that. Um, the broker shared a lot of things. You know, she was very open and really wanted me to be confident if I went down this path that, you know, I understood what I was, was getting here. T tell us about that ride in the car with the broker for, for an hour and a half. Yeah. I thought I was going to get shook down the whole way, <laughs> um, but that didn't happen. No, it was nice to chat with her. We, you know, talked about other businesses, employees leaving, um, all sorts of different things. The business, we, you know, the owners we were going to be talking to, some of the advice she had given them that they, you know, they had taken, other that they didn't, and just really learned a lot. And um, I have a lot of respect for uh, the openness that was was shared. It helped me feel more confident about, um, you know, the path I eventually went down. Great. So, so we understand how, in your own mind, you could you you thought you'd mitigate the risk of yep. the whole business basically being key people. It, what about <laughs> what about some of this stuff around project based, uh, seasonal, et cetera? Some of some of the yep. other uh, ostensible weaknesses in the business. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest things that I was looking <clears throat> for. So my experience you know, at Fidelity was um, you know, high value you know, sales with a long sales process. So high ticket items. Uh, was something I was experienced with, and that's something I was looking for in an acquisition. Um, so that was an area where I, I felt I had an advantage and could bring um, you know a little something to this business. Um, tell tell us more about that, Nick. What, what do you like about high ticket 
items. Obviously, we all like bigger do- bigger dollar signs rather than smaller ones. Yep. But the flip side of high ticket is that there's a long sales cycle, and, and the and cash cash coming in is usually lumpier. So, so why did you yep. like that? And 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 what about that sales process? Did you feel like you could add value to? Yeah, I liked it because it's what I knew. Um, you know, wealth management is you're going to be meeting someone. Um, you know, they need to trust you. You need to build that confidence, show that confidence, um, you know, before they give you their money. Um, same thing with a wedding caterer, you know, you're going to be trusting me with potentially never meeting us since we're in a destination, um, with the most important vendor at your entire wedding, you know, a wedding could go on without a photographer or, you know, any other, you know, flowers, but the caterer is responsible for setting everything up, folding the napkins, serving the food on time, you know, following the timeline. Um, so I felt there was some aspects, both in the sales process of being able to articulate, listen, add value, um, that would apply to, you know, hiring a wedding caterer as well. What else in the business, were there any of these other risks that you saw that you needed to to get comfortable with or have we hit them all oh there was a bunch more T- tell tell me there was some customer concentration covid was very much still a risk um all of the employees we had the seasonality um when you say all of the employees so there were other employees I, so did were they kind of 1099 folks who would help you on the day of a wedding sort of thing Correct. There was a you know a list of forty or so part-time wait staff who you know was their second job. Typically, would work the events, so actually execute on the day of. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the only other quote-unquote employees of the business. Mm-hmm. And I think that would sum up um, you know the biggest risks that I kind of saw from the on-site, um, aside from the. You know, one specific to the industry. And and what about the customer concentration? What what did that look like and how did you get comfortable with it? Yeah, so I was very scared that I was gonna come in and take over this business. You know, the owners have had it for 30 years, and these wedding venues are gonna say, Who is this guy? You know, we don't really want to work with you anymore. And then, you know, there goes 15% of my revenue, 20% of my revenue. Um, so in the wedding business, uh you're, if you were getting married, the first thing you're going to do is go find your venue. Um, the second thing you're going to do is find your caterer. So a lot of when I purchased business, almost all of the business was on referrals from those um, wedding venues. So I was very scared that I was going to go in there and they were going to say, nope, we don't want to work with you anymore. We don't know you. Um, and so that was uh, another p- risk that I had to um de-risk as best as I could as we get into the actual purchase. Mm -hmm. And you thought that you'd be able to do that just, I mean, it was, it was a risk that you were aware of, but just thought you'd absorb that risk and hope for the best and do, do your best to kind of go and approach these venues and develop relationships as early and as quickly as possible sort of thing. Yeah. I asked for a specific plan of how we're going to approach that, you know, outlaid that to the seller. That was a key risk to me. And then ultimately had uh, provision in uh, APA um, regarding if we lost those 
venues, mm -hmm. you know, over a certain period of time, that uh, portion of the stellar note would be reduced. Mm -hmm. And on this point about you know, the, the linchpins being these relationships you have with the venues, mm -hmm. how competitive is the local market where they, you know, they, they, how many other caterers are you competing with for the relationships with these venues? Yeah. So this jumps into some of the attractive aspects of the company. Um, so being that it was a, or is a small you know, tourist town, this was the only off-premise catering company in town. The next closest competitor was 30 miles away and down a big, steep uh, you know, mountain to, to get there. And I thought that was very attractive. I think that answers the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, the COVID risk. What were you, I mean, yep. <laughs> I, I got married during COVID. So I, and, and we had started doing research. I was living in San Francisco at the time. We had started doing research yep. in Napa, where else? Uh, and had started getting kind of pitches from venues in wine country. So, uh, yep. and then basically had a COVID wedding in the living room of my godmother in, in, San, in Noe Valley. So we didn't go that path. So we're kind of exhibit A on why uh, the wedding venue, wedding caterer industry got just absolutely hammered, at least in the first six or so months of COVID. So <laughs> how, were, how did you wrap your head around that? I can guess like, COVID ain't going to be forever was kind of your answer in your own mind. Uh, I hoped, I mean, I think at that point, you know, nobody, nobody really knew. Um, but it seemed to be getting better, uh, as, as I recall. And again, a provision in the APA of if revenue dropped by X percent based on, you know, COVID or something similar, uh, reduction in the seller note, um, again. Great. Sounds like you, you were really good about basically you know, adding explicit language to, to mitigate all of this, all of these individual risks. I tried my best. So now let's look, go back to some of the, the positives as we were starting to touch on not a very competitive market. I mean, you were kind of a market leader. Uh, and what else? Yeah. Um, by the time of closing or there was going to be over a million dollars in future booked revenue. So I felt that was very much what I was ultimately buying was, you know, there's at least some revenue in my future. Um, it was about $400,000 in deposits, which would transfer upon the sale of the business. Um, you know, the history, the reviews were awesome. The natural moat, the sellers really connected with, felt great about them. Um, and because you're booking wedding catering, you know, quite far in advance, um, a cash flow analysis was actually pretty clear of when we're getting money, um, you know, from these booked clients. Uh, so that helped me feel really comfortable that you know, I'm not going to get the keys and then business is just going to disappear. Um, so all of those were pretty attractive uh, on top of you know, good margins. Um, and my analysis looked good too. And what did margins look like when you say good? The SDE has an asterisk behind it because the two owners in the business, um, they were running, you know, a net margin north of 40%, you know, 40 to 45%. Um, I obviously thought that was ridiculous, but as you kind of back that out, I felt comfortable. I'd be able to keep the company, you know, north of a 20%, you know, net margin. Mm -hmm. 
So let's talk about this $400,000 that's sitting in the bank account. And yep. what the other thing you just said, the negative cash conversion cycle. So, you you know, unlike a lot of small businesses that my, my guests acquire, uh, in this business, you get your money up front or half, you know, you get the deposit, which I guess is half the cost of a job. Uh, and then you spend the money as you pay for all the expenses associated with your delivery of the service. Um, so that's very attractive. It means that, you know, cash flow shouldn't, shouldn't be uh, too tricky to juggle uh, in this business as it can be in other businesses. Um, maybe you'll, you'll correct me as the story goes. And then also you have $400,000 in cash that's just going to transfer with the business. So they're not like typically if there's cash sitting in the bank account, a seller will say, that's mine. I earned that. I'm taking it with me. And then you, that's when right. you get into the kind of working capital, you, the buyer, get into the working capital negotiation, how much working capital needs to be in the business for this thing to operate. What is, you know, what's the oxygen need of this business? Sounds like they weren't thinking about it that way and they were just going to leave it all in there and it was sizable, 400,000. So what can you say about that? Yeah, uh, I think it's different than um, a lot of other businesses because these deposits were for, you know, future events. So the sellers hadn't, you necessarily earn this money rather they just had received it um for a, a future event so it is different than most businesses in that you know, we are getting paid well in advance so a lot of this money you know is sitting there isn't going to be used you know until you know six months later you know three months later four months later um, so I thought that was incredibly attractive and I'm still challenged to find, you know, list more than a few industries that have such a incredible, you know, negative cash conversion cycle. Um, so that also led me to, that's a lot of money in deposits. Um, you know, what happens that at closing and then you know, a little research, I said, well, okay. Um, based on kind of the numbers we've thrown around so far, I'm going to get a check and a sizable check on closing. And based on what we've discussed so far, that's going to be well in excess of, you know, the working capital needs to keep this company, um, you know, rolling like it has been in addition to hiring um, and the investments that I was expecting to have to make. And to be clear, this check that you were going to get was basically the cash in the business. They were just zeroing their bank account, giving it to you to put into your bank account. Yes. Right. Well, that, that's a perfect uh, moment now to get into the terms of this deal in some detail, because this is where yep. an already interesting uh, business acquisition story gets super interesting. So what can you tell awesome. us? Yeah. So numbers uh, and acquisition. So company, uh, when I acquired it, was doing about a million dollars in revenue. SDE of the... Two owners, four hundred and forty thousand, and then I paid a purchase price of four hundred thousand. That was comprised of a marketing fee for the booked events plus a purchase price, but all in four hundred thousand. And then negotiations. It became clear to me this wasn't a company that I was confident enough in to go take out an SBA loan. That is what I was originally planning to do. Um, so I made my offer, um, in a way where the sellers would be, you know, carrying the note. Um, so we structured the LOI or rather I structured the LOI, 
uh, in such a way where there'd be 30% of that purchase as uh, you know, down payment, 130,000 or so. And then the remainder, the seller would carry. Um, so 270,000, you know, carried over 10 year amortization with a four year balloon. And you didn't want to go SBA. So you've come to like this business and want to acquire this business, which mm -hmm. means that you are confident in what you can do with this business. But I guess there's yep. yet another level of confidence uh, where you take an SBA loan and, and personally guarantee, and you didn't you didn't want to go that far. You also, let, it needs to be said, didn't need to, because as we know, you had kind of a lot of negotiating leverage here. Correct. I was scared at this point. Uh, I hadn't, you know, I had two people who worked for me part-time in wealth management. I'd never managed anyone. I had no operational experience. Um, and so it seemed you, especially for this type of business, um, a risk that just felt a little bit excessive. Um, whereas if I could structure this in such a way where, you know, my personal risk is, you know, effectively zero, um, that right size the risk and made it much more attractive to me to jump into something I don't totally love, but love a lot of aspects of it, um, to make it really interesting for my first acquisition. Mm -hmm couple follow-up points there. So in fact, some of where you, what you saw as the biggest risk was less in the business itself, although of course any business carries a lot of risk, but in your mm -hmm. own ability to operate, manage, because you'd never really let people before other than a couple part-time people uh, while you were at a W-2. 100%. That's what scared me was, can I do this? Which I had confidence, but I had no track record, yeah. no experience in doing that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit too about your, how you see this as maybe kind of the first step in a career as an acquisition entrepreneur. You said this mm -hmm. is going to be this, you, you characterize this as my first acquisition, implying there will be others. So maybe what was your kind of mental model around this particular project? My mental model was that this is a no risk opportunity to learn everything that I don't know about operating a business, managing people, growing a business. And I truly felt that, you know, the only way to truly learn this stuff is go do it. Um, so once I connected that of, Hey, I can get in here, I can make some money and I can, um, you know, do some really great things. Uh, it became, you know, a really attractive acquisition target um, from a risk-adjusted standpoint, mm -hmm. which is how I tend to evaluate any in investment that I make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was also a little bit of like a rookie at bat, and you, you know you're kind of you're kind of earning your stripes through this one. Um, so yeah. first step on uh, free at bat, see how it goes, and uh, <laughs> you know hope for the best, um, if you will, and then we can uh, you know, see what happens once I get to you know first base. And and how old are you at this at this time? Uh, I was 29 years old. Okay, 29. Okay, back to the back to the terms of the deal. Uh, so yeah. you so f basically purchase price headline number four hundred thousand, um, seventy percent. Seller financed, 30% down payment. Um, but, and it, that 30% came out to call it 130, roughly 130,000. 
but you're also getting a check from them, which is they're liquidating their bank account and moving that $400,000 into your bank account. So mm-hmm. what? So I'm, I'm teeing you up here. What are the implications of that with respect to this $130,000 number you got to come up with? Uh, that means I didn't have to have the $130,000. Um, basically, at closing, they subtract that down payment amount. So the seller gets to keep that 130000 And then the you know, difference um, is wired into my bank account You know, the day after closing. So you buy a business that is without an SBA loan, without a personal guarantee, 70% seller financed, and the 30% that you have to bring comes out of a check they're giving you. So on the day you close, you don't, you actually receive a check for $270,000, $260,000. That's the four hundred dollars less the hundred and thirty dollars that represents your, your down payment. That's correct. Yep. So, so, so this, this, this structure feels like something that, you know, a guru would, would tout as what's possible out there, but you really, it's really rare to actually hear stories like this. I mean, that, that's a, that's pretty favorable and amazing, right? I mean, am I, am I interpreting this correctly? Yeah. I mean, it was a culmination of a lot of factors for all of these things to come together. Um, it, Really, you know, you'd have to have a, a a very specific seller situation type of business, and they'd have to be really confident in you taking over. To you know, there was a lot of trust that yeah. the seller was you know handing me. Yeah, um, and I took it seriously, um, but it was you know it's a it's a lot. Well, th- this would be a good time to talk about that uh, the old Ranger cabin on the property. We get the LOI all taken care of. And um, I've got a bunch of stipulations um, surrounding, you know, the chef staying on, surrounding um, a variety of the things we talked about earlier. And I'm living in California. I say, okay, well, got to quit my job. I'm under LOI. Uh, so we packed up my Forerunner, uh, drove 20 hours uh, back to Colorado. That might be an exaggeration, 16. And uh, I signed a one-month lease for due diligence to live on site in that ranger cabin. So I moved straight from uh, you know the beach to the mountains into a one bedroom, you know, 110-year-old log cabin and uh, began my due diligence. And so if something came up in diligence that you didn't like or that was a deal breaker, um, you couldn't go back to California. You were now Correct. basically uh, uh, stuck in Colorado, although maybe stuck is the wrong word because you had designs on moving back to Colorado anyway. Um, but still, Correct. you kind of really uprooted yourself and had no other home other than this cabin. So uh, it probably felt like you sure didn't want to uncover something negative in diligence. You really wanted this thing to, more than even my typical guess, you really wanted this thing to look good and get all the way across the finish line with it. I, I was committed at that point. I definitely had you know, a backup plan if I found something. Um, I had done a bit of due diligence prior to moving, so I had seen the you know, tax returns. I had seen the P&Ls um, and everything lined up. So I was fairly certain uh, that there wasn't going to be anything um, that was 
you know, so big that I couldn't, you know, um, get past it. Mm-hmm. Great. And the husband and wife, where do they live with respect to the property? Uh, five minutes away. Okay. And then just to round out the, the terms of the deal. So did you spend any money on anything? Yeah. Um, so on with the LOI, I put 20 grand uh, in earnest money. I paid someone off Dudilio about $1,000 to kind of double check some of my work and act as a mentor. I worked with uh, Oberly Risk Strategies. They uh, did my insurance on your suggestion. That's where I heard about it on this podcast. Great. Um, looked at a few other uh, insurance providers as well. And Oberly, so were pretty awesome. They said, send us what you got. We're going to run you through every single uh, aspect of what we think you should have, the costs associated with them. So that was a huge value add for me, not knowing what I was doing. And then throughout <laughs> the process um, of you know, working with them, I'd get a reply in 24 hours every time if I needed something. Um, and then on the tail end, they did such a good job with the uh, buyer. Uh, my understanding is that the person who bought the business continued on with them. So, uh, yeah, they, right. they did an incredible job. And then um, I paid my lawyer, um, who he also does taxes, tax attorney as well. So it helped out. I didn't have a CPA at this point. Um, so those were my only, you know, quote unquote costs. No QOV or anything like that. Um, so deal costs were pretty minimal, all things considered. And just going all the way back to your original search parameters where you're looking for the kind of typical 500 to a million in SDE, the, yep. were, were you going to have your own capital f- f- to bring the, the money, the equity and the deal cost for a deal of that size? Or were you thinking that you might have to raise money from investors if you found a deal of that size? Yeah, I was planning to raise money from investors. So in that build up period while I was still working, you know, hitting everyone up who will talk to me on search funder, investors, you know, people in other industries, networking, trying to build, you know, my list of people who may be interested in investing in me. Um, So I was very much of the mindset of I'm going to need to raise capital, want to raise capital um, and ended up not having to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with this deal. Yeah. (laughs) Not only not having to raise capital, but only having to actually outlay 20 grand over the whole whole process. Okay. <laughs> so you're living in the Ranger cabin, doing yep. diligence and anything, yep. anything to say there? Anything you uncover actually being on site for a month? Nothing crazy came up. I was in there working at weddings, you know, learning their systems and processes, what you know, little pieces there were. Um, and there absolutely was, um, just not documented. And uh, it went pretty smooth. You know, I'd meet with the um, sellers. At this point, I'd convinced the um, woman who had quit to come back. That was part of the LOI. Uh, So she was up there working again um, and had made some headway on hiring chefs uh, as well in due diligence. So for this this month, you're under LOI, but you're effectively... Maybe it's a little strong to say you're starting the transition, but maybe not. I mean, you're already starting to kind of hire yeah, for a business yeah. you don't own. You're doing what in a in a field service business we might call a ride along, uh, where you're in the truck with somebody. But in your case, you're actually working weddings 
and and kind of right contributing to the operations as 100%. you percent yeah yeah Great. yep yeah no i started to get my feet wet um you know once i started to get comfortable with all the numbers and all, all of those aspects it was more of all right i'm gonna be buying this business um what what can i do to you know set myself up for success and attempt to make these first few months uh as easy as possible which uh you know didn't happen but that's okay okay well maybe um so so it's as I recall from the pre-call, you actually get through this diligence. Probably helps that you're living there uh, to go quickly. It's a 30-day from LOI to close. Yes, uh, it was about I think 45 from when when we signed LOI and then due diligence period was 30 days. Okay, I maybe I I don't recall exactly perfectly. But. Okay, what then uh, does it look like to finally become owner? Yeah. Um, it was exciting for the first 12 hours and then said, hey, we have a wedding tomorrow. Um, <laughs> let's figure this out. <laughs> it's a big wedding too, you know, 200 people. Um, so I had uh, training periods with both the owners and was living on site. So basically this started my 60 to 80 hours a week for the first, you know, probably four or five months living on site. I was initially basically doing everything um, from being in the kitchen, helping out the two chefs that I had hired to cleaning the bathrooms to you know, figuring out how to detail. I was learning to plan weddings. I was at tastings, learning to sell weddings. So I was very much in the weeds, learning just about every single aspect of the operations of this business, um, beating myself up doing it. I yeah. uh, just, you know, long hours, manual labor, um, sorts of things. And so you're at this point, 60 to 80, 60 to 80 hours a week living in the cabin on the, on the premises. Yep. You're doing nothing but this business. I mean, you are living and breathing this transition, this business. And, 100%. and, and you're, you're in a, in a town where I know it's your home state of Colorado, but do you even know people in, in the town where you now are? Because your family is in another part of Colorado, as I recall. I did not know anybody in this town. So it's it's just just wall to wall doing the business. All in, yep. Great. Working transitions. It's a thousand different things every every day. Um, so it was a lot, but I felt like the right way, especially with hires that I'm gonna have to make of you know being able to understand this business. It gave me peace of mind that. You know, if something breaks, someone doesn't show up that I'll be able to be the one, um, you know, who can pick up that slack. Um, wasn't the goal from, you know, for the long term, but it felt like the right thing to do in the near term. Sure. Sure. And over the long term, or at least the medium term, like how long did you think that you would want to or have to sustain this just as long as possible? Or were you like, I'm going to go, you know, six months at this? Because you do have a larger vision of extracting yourself out of the out of the business. So uh -huh. what, do you have any kind of timelines in your mind of, of what that looks like? As quick as possible, get me out of operations. Um, so easier said than done again, but it, I, six months was kind of my idea of, I'm not going to be living in this cabin full time anymore. I'm going to be, you know, maybe a few days a week and then getting that down to one day a week um, up in, you know, 
the business and then spending the majority of my time, you know, in, in Denver, um, you know, with family and, um, you know, my wife. Oh, okay. Well, that that's actually pretty quick to think that a business that requires so much to kind of put infrastructure in place and, and, and mm-hmm. can, can survive without you literally like holding it together with your bare hands, um, that in six or so months you'd be able to actually only be there a few times a week, not e- let alone, you know, be living there working 60, 80 hours. So you were, you were, you actually had a pretty, at least to, from my perspective, uh, an accelerated, an accelerated ambitious, uh, timeline there. Um, and, you know, you had gotten a big, strong taste for the business during the period of diligence while you're living there. But now that you're the owner operator, does any, does it feel, does it feel different? Are you learning new things about the business that only came to light now that you're the owner? Yeah, it totally felt different. People came to me for their questions uh, and what to do. And I had to make decisions, decisions that I'd never made in my life before. Um, and I'd never had fired anyone. I had never told anyone you know, specifics of you know, what to do. Uh, and a lot of this was um, challenging for me at the onset. Um, I realized this later, uh, but I think this is worth mentioning. Of I learned my conflict style is uh, both to avoid and accommodate. Uh, and so that was challenging for me um, to you know, address people and uh you know expectations and when they weren't met um so it was a lot of learning while doing and you know a lot of learning about myself as well well let's say more about that nick because there's going to be some people who are conflict averse i mean i think probably more than half the population prefers to avoid conflict there are there are those people who <laughs> yeah. who don't mind fighting and are even drawn to it uh, but I don't like conflict. So, so talk more about somebody who's having to kind of get over his conflict aversion, conflict avoidance uh, on the fly without training, you know, yep. first time. Give us more. Yeah. Um, so it was really challenging at first because I didn't realize you or put a name to it, if you will. Um, so yeah, I was getting super nervous to tell someone, hey, you have the wrong shoes on uh, and, you know, you need to wear black non-slip shoes. Um, and so, you know, over time, purely just repetition, I got more comfortable with it. And then once I finally got through the, you know, the framing of, you know, forget me, you know, it's best for this business. It's best for the clients, um, you know, expectations that, Hey, we're going to, you know, these are the expectations of the business to execute and have the best possible event. Once I could put myself in that mindset, I was able to kind of get out of my skin and say, you know, confidently what needed to be said. Um, and so do you think if we yeah. saw you have an interaction where you're basically having to tell somebody what to do, one of your staff, what to do directly, if we saw an interaction like that, uh, in week one versus at the end of month six, that your performance would feel materially different night and day. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Learning how to lead. I love it. And, um, in yeah. any, in those early days, as you're learning this, uh, were there any missteps that you can share or just kind of general timidity or, or, or do, you know, do you look back now at any specific example where you're like, man, I didn't handle that well. Yeah. One thing that 
I made a misstep. As I was starting to transition myself out of the business, I didn't make, I didn't communicate it clearly to the entire staff. You know, our kind of more operations person um, was aware of kind of where, where I wanted to be in the business, but I didn't make it clear to everyone kind of where I was trying to put myself and wanted to spend time you know, on the business rather than in the business. So when I wasn't there every day and I started showing up, you know, six months and two, three days a week, and then, you know, later on one day a week, um, that led to some feelings of Nick doesn't care, um, you know, questions of, you know, who's in charge, you know, doubt, and obviously none of that's good for, you know, the employees of the business. So one thing I would, you know, it seems so simple, communicate you know, your visions and, you know, how you're going to be involved. But I didn't do that. And that led to people, um, you know, having feelings that could, could have been avoided. Okay. Good, good lesson. And any, so, so kind of learning to manage, learning to lead any other difficulties, any, any fetal position moments, any, any moments of, of panic or terror? Absolutely. Let me give you an example um, of, uh, this was probably more consistent terror. Um, so we got a big wedding day. So we have three weddings in one day. Um, so operationally, and this was where a lot of my stress came was operations. Um, what does that mean? That means we have to prepare three separate menus. So appetizers, entrees, desserts. Um, and that's probably for 500 cumulative people. Wow. So we're thinking, you know, a, stupid amount of different types of food. Um, and then on top of that, we're going to need to staff 25 to 30 people. Um, so we need people to show up and that's a lot more than we typically staff. And then we need to deliver all three of these different meals within about a 20 minute window. And then on top of that, we have three separate couples who um, it's the most important day of their entire life. And uh, if we don't execute, we are potentially, uh, you know, going to ruin or drastically impact that day. Um, so the operations were very in depth. And as you can imagine, we're missing one ingredient. Someone calls in sick. Um, we forgot to pack enough chafing dishes or any other things. Things could get out of hand really quick. And at this point, is it you doing every plate count and, you know, making sure the spice for this appetizer is stocked? Is that you doing all of that or do some of your 1099s do some of that or somebody or, or the woman that you hired back in? Yep. So we'll take a step back. Um, so initially, um, the day I purchased it, I had hired two chefs, uh, a head chef, and then a sous chef who's also previously been a head chef. They both had some catering experience. Um, so I was really confident, um, partially because I can't cook in mass quantities, that even if one of these chefs left, that the other would be able to lead. So I mitigated that risk kind of on day one. Um, day one, I'd also hired the one who had been there for seven years. Um, she started actually before the close. She knew the operations. She started as a server and kind of had worked her way up through each of the different pieces. Um, she was going to lead sales. I felt that was her strongest point, but helped out with the operations piece. 
for the next two months, I was doing a lot of the, you know, prep, those sorts of things. Uh, majority of the ordering was on the chefs. And then at two months in, we hired a former wedding planner to kind of take over the operations. So more of the glue between the sales to the wait staff, to the chefs, um, stocking things. Um, and so I was just about two months in, you know, still a part of it, but I was just kind of jumping in where I needed to be. Um, so I didn't necessarily have a, a true role other than support, you know, document and just kind of pick up the slack wherever it needed at that point. Wow. Well, that's uh, pretty great to take a business that's 30 years old, completely reliant on husband and wife to, you know, starting to build a layer there where where you're, you're kind of mostly over, you as owner are kind of mostly overflow pair of hands and just jumping in where needed. Yeah, there was still a lot of overflow. There were a lot of tasks that were mine. So, for example, I was still doing staffing for all of the events. Um, so there was still a lot of things for me to do. Um, but I was starting to feel more confident that I can um, get into a place where I'm not a fundamental piece of the you know daily operations. And all of these hires that you're making, there's enough meat mm -hmm. on the bone to do that. So from one chef to two, you hire back yep. that employee who is there under the previous owners. Then you hire a wedding planner. You're pay Are you yep. paying yourself now a salary? Um, I was so S Corp LLC. So I was paying myself, you know, fairly minimal, you know, 60 grand a year, um, uh, income, uh, I did not take any money out of the business in the first year. Um, you know, we showed a profit I could have. Um, but the short answer is yes, there was enough meat on the bone to, yeah, basically afford me an income, have some leftover from, you know, business earnings and still pay each of these, um, you know, additional hires. Um, and we, we'd been growing the business all along too. Yeah. You know, it was pretty quick to hop on some of the, the optimizations and, you know, ultimately led to the revenue growth too. Well, I, I want to hear about that in just a second, but I, I guess also this, this $270,000 check, $260,000 mm -hmm. check that you just dumped right into your bank account. Um, yep. that gave you, and, and that money wasn't, that was just kind of accrued profits over time. That mo money wasn't deposits that we're going to need to, to, that was, there was all deposits. Okay, so so that deposits. it's not like you could just do whatever you wanted to do. Like you couldn't hire new people out of that money. You were going to need to pay for the delivery of services with that 260, 270. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I will put a little uh, addition onto that though. Um, so with all the future booked revenue, we're going to continue to take in money, you know, six months prior or 50% of, you know, a client's bill six months prior. So immediately from when I acquired was roughly the beginning of wedding season. So that 260 was continuing to accrue. So you could effectively, you know, spend some of that on payroll and, and some of these other expenses, knowing that your cash flow situation is not going to become dire for quite some time. Okay. Assuming you're still continuing to book events, of course. Yeah. Great. Okay. So tell us about some more of these improvements that you're making to the business other than just more headcount. Yeah. Um, so there was, you know, a fair amount of 
low-hanging fruit. Um, it was a DIY Wix website. Um, you know, so got someone off Upwork to create a better website. Um, I was focused initially on optimizing the sales process, and then um, you know some of the operational stuff would follow second. So the initial goal was just a presence. Um, pictures and reviews sell weddings. Our pictures were terrible, and uh, our wedding venue was underutilized. So new websites, networked with some of the photographers up there to do a styled shoot, get really incredible um, photographs of all of our um, you know, different venues, weddings we cater at, uh, and just put our venue on the map. A lot of people who even live there didn't know it existed. Um, and then just making it really easy as well from the catering side of, hey, you filled out our proposal, a request for a proposal, now schedule a Calendly. Um, the odds of us closing business, if we could just get someone on the phone, you know, about doubled. If we could get them to come to a tasting and try our food, we have a 75% chance of closing that business. So just getting us one step closer and just making it that much easier for the client to talk with us and talk with us quickly, um, really pay dividends really quick at, on the front end. And on that particular point, kind of like refining your 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 sales funnel, that was where you mm -hmm. were kind of there was good business buyer fit. That was where you were leaning on some of your expertise from your previous job. Fair to say, correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then um, yeah, it was coaching. I, I implemented kind of a sales process, you know, consultative sales um, with the, the salesperson of you know just adding consistency um, to you know every call we're on to talk about. You know, what's important to the client, but also what's differentiating about us as a company. Mm -hmm. And some of this other stuff, the, the improved website, the, the new photographs, properly marketing the venue, uh, putting, getting it on the map, so to speak. Was this all stuff yep. that you only learned once you were inside the business or had you seen those as opportunities from the outside? Um, majority of it was while I was in the business. You know, something like the G Suite, I knew hey, this is what we've got to do. But a lot of it was just getting into the weeds and figuring out, hey, this is an inefficiency. What can we do to you know, do this a little bit better? Um, you know, we've stressed really from day one, we need to document everything. So our process for our servers, here are your expectations. For our captain of a event, here's your sign-out sheet. What can we do better? Um, and then, you know, scanning that into the Google Drive, sharing that with the entire team. So just giving a full transparency from the beginning to end of everyone who's a part of it, of how are we doing and asking what can we do better. Um, and that led to some really good ideas that you know, I wouldn't have come up with as well. Mm -hmm. This point about the team. So really the team is, I mean, you've got eventually two chefs, you've got, um, you, you've got a wedding planner, you've got sales and operations, the sales and operations person. Um, but when you say team, I assume you also probably mean all of the 1099s that you are bringing back for events on a regular basis. Those folks as well. Are you, how much of a relationship are you developing with these people who work contract for you? Yeah. Um, I would say Depends. You know, some people might show up once a month. Others yeah. would show up, you know, four times a, a week. Um, but they were very much a part of it. They started to feel, hey, 
I made a suggestion that, um, you know, we need to do this with the trash at night. That's implemented the next day. Um, so I think just having their voice heard helped them feel uh, a bit more a part of the team. Um, and we'd also pull on the, some of these people for big events, come help out here, come out, help out here, um, help us, you know, do a walkthrough for an event. Um, so it started to feel a bit more inclusive of, you know, you're not just showing up for a gig job. Um, you're showing up to be a part of something and that something's the most important day of someone's life. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be fundamental in executing on that. Mm -hmm. So the business was doing, uh, about a million dollars in revenue. Yep. And Only you required. thought a, a, I mean, a goal was to get it to 2 million and improve Correct. margins somewhat. Mm -hmm. Now that you were a couple months, few months into the business, how realistic did that goal seem? A couple months in, it seemed realistic. You know, we were able to raise prices quite a bit. Uh, we were, we were way below kind of our competitors. We were able to increase the venue fees um, and targeted getting a liquor license you know, about six months out. Um, and our sales were kicking up. Our average event price was increasing. Um, so it felt we had the workings to get to that $2 million. I targeted to be able to do that in two years. Um, and we were starting to see that uptick you know, in the first few months. We have a lot of Improvements we're seeing, you know, we're increasing our minimums. We're cutting out some of the, um, you know, when I bought the business the previous year, they did 299 events. Um, and I was able to say, hey, let's chop this bottom 20%. We're not even going to take those events. So they don't make us money. And let's focus on the higher end. And we were starting to book some of these $20,000 weddings, some of these really big, awesome events. Um, and I was feeling really confident about being able to execute on them. The more I got involved with the community, with the wedding association and got to know the owners of the other venues, you know, get numbers on, Hey, how many weddings are you doing a year? Um, I realized that how much of the market that we had are, was pretty significant. We probably were doing about 40% of the potential weddings that we could cater at um, in the city and you know the surrounding 15 or 20 minutes. It was a lot higher than the number I initially thought. Um, and the next highest competitor had you know, less than 10% of, of that market share. So that was the point where I started to realize you know, this growth that I initially you know, thought was possible um, it may not actually be attainable. So one of the and just just so we understand, forty percent market share is a lot, but it's still ton. me. It's a ton to to be clear for the audience, but it still you know means that there's sixty percent yet to conquer. So, but in your own mind, so it it you're basically telling us that it didn't feel like to double the business. It means going from fifty to eighty percent market share, which is doesn't really happen so just just to so people understand that like there's no such thing as getting a hundred percent market share in a services business really so so what do you see the ceiling a, a, of your own market share potential being probably not much higher than you're already at is that what you're telling us yeah i i thought we can really 
invest in our own venue. We can upsell that for rehearsal dinners to all of our off-premise catering clients, and we can do a ton of micro weddings since that's a trend that's been continuing to grow um, at our own venue. Um, and I think we can still, mainly through the price increases, you know, increase our you know, price per head or you know, total event cost. But I didn't see a lot of opportunity to grow the number of events we were doing outside of our own venue. So to answer your question, I thought maybe one five, one six um, would be kind of where we can get to if we add a few more venues, you know, and a little bit further out, uh, maybe one or two that we weren't catering at very much, um, you know, in the in the in the town. So this kind of de facto ceiling on where you think you can get revenue without totally transforming the business or or pursuing some super aggressive geographic expansion means what? What does that mean for your plan? Well, it's just a projection. So who knows, right? But that's where it started to, you know, the initial thought of maybe this doesn't have the potential that I thought. Maybe this isn't the company that I'm going to own for the next 10 years. That was maybe the initial inkling that kind of led me down that path of, um, hey, there's still a lot of work to be done, but it it might not be what I initially you know thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so, what does that thinking lead you to? Well, uh, yeah, that thinking ultimately led me to um, you know a sale. Um, so, to put some numbers to it, uh, the first you know ten months I owned the business, so twenty twenty two, we got it up to about one point two five million uh, top line sales. And um, 2023, uh, we were on track to hit you know 1.4. Um, those growth numbers, you know, good, uh, not super exciting. And I, especially beginning of 2023, looking at our bookings, you know, doing comparisons, you know, historically, um, and the additions we had done to our own venue, uh, it was pretty clear of hey, we've done great here, improved a lot of things, but this isn't going to get to 2 million. This isn't going to be, um, you know, attainable without a huge investment of expansion and a ton of money into a, you know, new hires, new space, um, new venues, and just kind of restarting in another geographic location. So what do you decide to do instead? Uh, I decided to try to sell a business. And I was of the mindset that I could sell it myself for some reason. Um, went down that path of reaching out to some of our competitors. Um, got someone who wanted to purchase it at the price I was asking. And um, it became clear after about a month or two that hey, this person's a chef and you know they've got really big aspirations, um, but they've never bought a business. And... I don't think this is actually going to go through, even though, you know, the prospective buyer says they want it to go through. So I ultimately ended up listing it with a broker, um, listed it uh, about 900,000. And then about two months later, we got a um, offer from a local family office uh, who has a number of other businesses and, you know, kind of the weddings and event space. And, um, Sold it for eight hundred thousand dollars. Eight hundred thousand dollars. You had 
acquired it for $400,000. But as we know, mm -hmm. very little of your own money went into that. You made $20,000, give mm -hmm. or take. So this eight hundred thousand dollars, can you can you give us more math on how it all shook out and essentially bottom line it for us, the money that you put in your pocket after this? Sure. Yeah. So eight hundred thousand um, sale price, uh, eighty thousand to the broker um, who found the buyer, um, five grand to uh, my attorney. I think about two thousand dollars in deal costs, and I had. A little bit over two hundred ten thousand remaining on the seller note, um, so roughly um, it was about a half million that uh, I was able to you know, profit from the from the sale. So half a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, and your cash outlay had been twenty. You basically pocketed five hundred thousand dollars. Is that was there any other money that flowed to you during the process? Like, did you take out any distributions that were Apart from the sixty thousand dollars, you were you were kind of salarying yourself. Um, yeah. So yeah. In addition to the distributions um, between the the whole nineteen months, um, I was able to pull out uh, roughly about uh, an additional four hundred thousand um, dollars, which is separate from the you know five hundred or so that I, I profited on the sale. So you were able to pull out $400,000 in cash as a distribution to you as owner, apart from what you were salarying yourself. This is pre-acquisite, pre-your sale of the business, $400,000 you took out of the business, not sitting in the business, but you actually paid to Nick Patrick. That's correct. So, so really you turned $20,000 into $900,000. That four hundred that you distributed to yourself, and then five hundred later from the sale. So twenty thousand into nine hundred thousand. So that's correct. Yeah. Well, that that just got a little juicier than what I what I already <laughs> thought was was pretty juicy for nine months of work. Glad uh, <laughs> glad glad we got that got that little detail as well. Um, that's that's remarkable. Um, wow. Okay, well done. So I, I guess this just goes to show that this is a, like you have said now, um, quite a profitable business. It's There are things not to like about it that we keep returning to, but 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 maybe we haven't amplified enough that what to like about it, which is that it's a um, it's a it, it's a high margin, very profitable type of business. Correct. Yeah, margins are huge, uh, and that just comes with you know, the expectations of, of what you're doing. How'd you feel about that? How'd you feel about, I mean, especially going back to like, you know, your thought about this exercise being kind of like, can I, am I even a capable, capable of owning and operating in a business and managing people and so on? Talk to us about how you kind of reflected back on um, how you now reflect back on both the financial windfall, but also the qualitative uh, value you gained along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was surreal. Um, the idea that, you know, I could tell this business at a profit, you know, made good income along the way. Um, and, you know, this might just be the beginning or it's go it is just the beginning. Um, it was incredible. Um, it, I learned more in, you know, those 19 months than either of my degrees. Um, and 
it was really impactful to me, you know, and this was the hardest part about selling was, you know, the employees. Um, you know, we were in a position to pay well. I had two employees who actually purchased their first house while they were working for me. Um, and, you know, that was, you know, very emotional to, um, you know, make those calls and share with them, um, you know, that the business had been sold. Um, yeah, the, the buyer I felt, or is a great company is going to afford, you know, additional benefits that I couldn't provide. Uh, and that, you know, helped me feel better about it, but it doesn't change the emotions of, um, yeah, uh, of leaving the employees. Yeah. And on that point, or at least the point about the decision to sell, understanding, thank you for your analysis about like this probably didn't have the long-term potential that you'd wanted it to, but you didn't, I mean, you didn't want to kind of hold on to it. I mean, it sounds like your acquirer is something of a, a local hold co. That's presumably their plan with it. Uh, you didn't, mm -hmm. you wanted to move on to your next thing as opposed to holding it, but, um, and, and being less involved, a little bit involved, but basically having it be kind of, um, you know, maybe, maybe the first business of a hold co. Your own yeah. hold co. No, that d definitely crossed my mind of the, the hold co, um, and yeah, this, this is challenging for me to answer. Um, cause I had an operations manager who was close to a general manager and evaluated it. And I, I felt with this company and how operationally challenging it was, even if I wasn't there, it's still something, you know, that I'm hearing about managing. I didn't have a hundred percent confidence that this was the right company to that I could confidently, you know, put it to a hold co manner and know that it's going to kind of take care of itself. Yeah. You know, with, you know, a hour or two a week, I didn't have that complete confidence. Um, so I wanted to, you know, kind of pass it on to the next person who could take it to the, to the next level. Uh, it, it seemed to make sense. And to be clear, you felt that it couldn't be that business because it's so operationally involved and the stakes are high for your, for your client, for your customer, the people getting married, most important day of their life. So it's not something, I mean, you, you treat every event as precious and there's so many details. It's, it's just a, it just, you got to really, it's kind of a business. You got to really be in somebody yeah. really that mining the ship tightly. Yep. Those, those things stressed me out, you know, even if I wasn't there, um, that wore on me. And so that, that was the stress was the operations. And that was one of the pieces that, you know, was, was a relief, um, and would be something I didn't want to carry with me, you know, for 10 years, 20 years in a, in a hold co. Yeah. And Nick, the, just reflecting back now, kind of more on this point, but tying it into how, you, when you were developing your search criteria, you did not want anything in hospitality or in food. Um, and then ended up buying something in hospitality and in food. How do you reflect back on those on, on like, or th what are your thoughts now on that industry, having seen it from the inside and being successful at it? Maybe you just, yeah. yeah so do you have a different thoughts or is it as advertised basically <laughs> in an industry that listeners should stay away from? Uh, I talked to someone yesterday who was looking at a catering company uh, and I stressed, you know, this is a business that is operationally challenging. 
I feel very strongly that the wedding services business is an extremely attractive kind of niche. Maybe not so much for you know someone who's trying to grow you know a traditional ETA type company, but it's a lifestyle business. Um, and there are some you know, different examples, but it's really attractive for a variety of reasons. Um, awesome margins, negative cash conversion cycle. Um, and I think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of potential to take advantage of that in a, a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Just to really net out here the value creation, you mm -hmm. bought a business for 400 and sold it for 800. So you doubled its enterprise value. And, but that, uh, part of that was revenue growth and therefore SDE growth. I mean, it was going to cash flow more. Um, but also you put in, you know, you, you basically built out, you, you operationally refined the business, improved the business. You built mm -hmm. out a, a management layer, uh, or at least much more than, than it had, than it had had. Is there anything else that you saw as the key to this basically doubling the, the value of a business in 19 months? That we that we didn't hit. So, yeah, a few things. I bought it low. I mean, I bought less than one times SDE. Um, so you know the age-old saying of you know you don't make money you know, on the sell, but at the buy, I think applies because I sold it, you know, roughly two times SDE. It wasn't a astronomical price. Um, That's a great point. Thank you. I, I failed to call out though that you basically bought it for one x SDE. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably a big aspect, yep. um, made it you know, more attractive to a purchaser, um, but that multiples average for hospitality, 2X. Hmm. The other aspect would be you know, just the people. Um, uh, everyone that was a part of the, or is a part of the two companies, um, subscribe to the mindset of, hey, we're different than anyone else. We're gonna have the best food. We're gonna have the best experience. Um, and I think everyone also having, you know, I empowered them to say, if you don't know what to do, just make a decision. I'm not going to fault you if it's the wrong decision. Um, the event comes first and we're going to figure out money or whatever we have to after. I think everyone getting behind that and truly feeling that they were a part of something, they were empowered and that they were going to make an impact for this person really helped when people would come visit with us, see us working, you know, be a part of our events that... You know, this was something special and that this is who I want to work with. People are having a good time uh, enjoying what they're doing. Um, so building that sort of um, you know, community or, you know, or you know, employ workplace. Culture. Was culture. Way better word. Thank you, Will. <laughs> uh, uh, was hugely impactful with, you know, just being able to grow it and um, doing it in a sustainable fashion. Well, Thank you for that. And it's a perfect segue to my final question, which is, as you sat in your W-2 looking forward at this at this prospect and like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm entrepreneurial, but I've never actually had a business. Yep. Was it uh, what you expected, just the, the role in life and the, the experience? Um, like, how do you, yeah, what, was it what you expected? Different? What? What can you say about just the kind of the kind of identity shift that you experienced. Yeah. Someone told me when I was at, you know, Fidelity that owning your own business, and they had done it previously, was you know, a lot of high highs and low lows. And I still remember that um, because 
there were a ton of high highs and lowest of lows. It was the most stressful job for, uh, that I've ever had, but also, you know, the most engaging and empowering and uh, exciting. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot. It'll impact, you know, relationships. Um, you can wake up in the middle of the night and uh, be thinking about things, uh, but it's all worth it. And uh, it's an experience that uh, I want to do again. And I want other people to you know, see that, hey, it's possible. You don't have to follow the, find the perfect business. Uh, if you're willing to get dirty, you know, it doesn't matter what your background is, your experience is. Um, you know, if you're committed to something uh, you know, and willing to put in the work, uh, you can uh, you know, be successful and have yeah. a good shot at it. Well put. And congratulations, Nick. It's, it's uh, great success for you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Nick, if people want to reach out to you, ask a question, how do you prefer they do that? Email, Twitter, search funder. I got it all. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll get all of that, put it into the notes. This Perfect. is a, a great story, Nick. C congratulations again. And yeah, and I love, aside from just the, the numbers stuff, I love the kind of central takeaway here of like um, taking another look at things and, and, and not being overly biased in your search criteria uh, and and really thinking through when an opportunity looks like it could be interesting, all of its risks, and then how you would mitigate those risks. And if they all feel mitigatable, uh, may, maybe it's an opportunity worth pursuing, which is exactly what you did and rewarded were rewarded handsomely to, for doing so. So pretty cool. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, well, I had a great time. You're fundamental in me going on this journey. So big thanks to you. And uh, yeah, I... Uh, I appreciate you. I, I really appreciate you saying that, Nick. Thank you very much.